Family, go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Leviticus. Hope you enjoyed your one-week break from our exposition of this book, and yet I hope you are excited to dig right back in to this wonderful book of God's Word. I think we talked about how Leviticus chapter 18 through 20 is one literary unit, Uh, and so we're starting a new literary unit today. In fact, it's a chiasm. You're welcome. For that, right? Uh, yeah, chapter 18 goes over the prohibition against mimicking the, the false worship of the nations and their actions, including their sexual ethics and such. And then chapter 19 is the focus, the middle of the chiasm, the command for the Lord, from the Lord to be holy. And then chapter 20 goes into case law of what happens when somebody um, practices the false worship or sexual ethics of the surrounding nations. And so it's bracketed that way. However, we're really just going to deal with the introduction this morning in the first five verses of chapter 18. That'll be enough for us to fill our time. Next week, we'll finish all of chapter 18, Lord willing, and then we'll dig into chapter 19 following that. I just wanted you to be aware that this, 18 through 20, is one literary unit. Let's go ahead and read Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 5. The precious and errant fallible word of God says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Gracious Father, we do do indeed thank you for your word. Lord, we recognize that it is powerful and active. We know, Lord, that your word is sufficient authoritative, Lord, that it is able to save and direct us in the way of godly living. And so, Father, as we come to this passage this morning, it is our desire by the work of your Holy Spirit that you would open our eyes to better understand your work throughout redemptive history, that we might come to a greater faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we might be emboldened to live lives that honor you. Grant us the grace to do so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So, admittedly, I have not had the honor of serving in our United States military, but I have many dear friends who do, and many of you have, and as a fan of history, correct me if I'm wrong, um, there's one thing I know about our military. The U.S. military demands absolute obedience to its rules. Once you enter the military, you can't act like you did when you lived under your mama's roof. The rules change. When you are in the military, you belong to good old Uncle Sam. What he says goes, it's his way or the highway. And what we find in our passage is actually something similar. It's It's a call to obedience to the Lord. That's really the big idea this morning in our text, is that the the Lord requires obedience. And that shouldn't be like an astounding statement for us. We relatively know that. But I think it's important for us to see how that uh, comes to fruition in the old covenant's relationship to the new covenant. That's what we're really going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about how does the Old Testament, the old covenant, relate to the new covenant? An agreement, again, is what a covenant is. If you don't know those words, we're going to be using a couple of biblical words this morning, and I'm going to have to define them for you. Hopefully, you familiarize yourself with this. That vocabulary is very important. Uh, but you understand what a covenant is, right? It's, it's an agreement made between two parties. And this really forms the basis of God's relationships to people throughout all of Scripture. It's a binding agreement. And so there are several covenants made throughout redemptive history. The covenant the Lord made with Adam, he made with Noah. We talked about this morning, the one he made with Abraham in our kids' time, the one he made with David, and the one he made with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. 
That's actually the covenant we're concerned with today. It's really what we mean when we say the words Old Covenant. That uh, Mount Sinai covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of law, is, is really when people refer to the Old Covenant, that's the one they're mostly talking about. It's the covenant made with Israel. Here's what I I want us to see about the Old Covenant first and foremost. The Old Covenant is built on the indicative. The Old Covenant is built on the indicative. Go ahead and write that down. I know that's probably another word we may not be as familiar with, but it's an important word as it relates to the the Greek language and the Hebrew language particularly. Um, Just like the Old Covenant is built on the indicative, just like the New Covenant is built on the indicative. If you're wondering what that means, indicative, it means merely a statement of fact. That's what uh, the, uh, the indicative is. It is what is. It says this is what has happened, what is happening, or what is going to happen. And this is how uh, the, the Old and New Testament kind of grounds everything in two ways. They do so through imperatives, which would be commands, or indicatives, statement of fact, right? Um, so, for instance, the, the commands, do unto others as you would have do unto you, right? The, this understanding of uh, 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 be angry and do not sin. Those are what we call imperatives. Those are clear, do not do this, do this, right? Indicatives are more like the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is simply describing what the evidence of the Spirit is. It's not in that text in Galatians 5 saying you must be loving and joyous and patient. No, it's simply describing the statement of fact. And and here's what I want us to see, and this is why this is important. We often believe that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, is only built on the commands and rules. right? And, And if you obey those commands and rules, then here's what you will be. This statement, what I'm saying this morning, and the argument I think is made from Scripture, is that the Old Covenant is actually built on, this is the statement of fact, this is what's true. And so look at it in the text and see if you might agree. The Lord commanded Moses, it says, to speak to Israel, and he announces through Moses, I am the Lord your God. This proclamation carries a lot of freight with it. We see that clearly from the text. It's, it's actually repeated three times in five verses, actually in four verses, because it's not mentioned in verse 1. And furthermore, it's also the center of a chiasm in verses 4 and 5. And, and as we learned, the emphasis of a chiasm is what's in the middle. And so it often serves to emphasize that point. It, it also bookmarks our passage today, if you notice. I'm the Lord your God is in verse 2, and then our text in verse 5 ends with, I am the Lord. But but this statement, this indicative, it not only bookmarks our passage, it bookmarks the entire literary unit, as we've already talked about. The literary unit is from chapter 18 to chapter 20. Well, here we are in the beginning of chapter 18, and we see, I am the Lord your God. What we find at the end of chapter 20 is this statement, I believe in 24 or 25, is the statement, I am the Lord. The Lord your God. Lastly, and this is the one I want you to write down from all this. uh, The repetition of verse 2 is meant to be the drumbeat of this entire literary unit. It's supposed to carry with it uh, this sort of um, rhythm. right? Through all, all three chapters of 18 through 20, this is the drumbeat. In fact, it goes like this. Chapter 18 will say, do this. I am the Lord your God. Don't do this. I am the Lord your God. Over and over again. We had a great illustration of a drum beat in the middle of, what was it, holy, holy, holy this morning. And Brother Judd was jamming on those toms this morning, right? Um, but that's the idea, is that here's the command, boom, I am the Lord your God. Here's the, the, the prohibition, boom, I am the Lord your God. Over and over and over again. Because I am the Lord your God is the indicative, it's the statement of fact that grounds all the commands in this literary unit. And in one sense... It answers the why question before it's even asked. Right? So, so we're going to see, don't uncover the nakedness of your sister. Why? Boom. Because I am the Lord your God. It's kind of like when my kids ask me why. Right? The but why question. I'm sure every parent has experienced this. Go put your shoes on. But why? Our response is, because I said so. Right? Now, There is an important way, however, where this analogy kind of fails in regard to this. Because often as parents, and if you're 
under the age of 18, just cover your ears for this part. Often, uh, as parents, we don't really have good reasons to respond to our kids. And because we don't, we say, because I said so. We, we may not know the answer to the question, and so we say, because I said so. Or, more frequently, in my personal experience, what they're asking is simply annoying us in that moment, and we don't have as much patience as we've prayed for, so we say, no, you can't do that. Why? Because I said so. Now, that's certainly not always the case, but sometimes, and here's what I want us to see, it's not that way with the Lord. In fact, all that the Lord prohibits and commands is grounded in His saving purposes, in His good, perfect, and pleasing will. I'll say that again. All that the Lord prohibits and commands is grounded in His saving purposes, His good, perfect, and pleasing will. It's not arbitrary. In other words, the Lord's not saying, do this because I am the Lord your God with no purpose behind the prohibition or command. Instead, the expression, I am the Lord your God, provides the very reason for all that is being commanded. The Israelites, by the way, the reason this doesn't have to be explained in Leviticus 18 is because they were already familiar with this expression. In fact, right before we're given the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 in verse 2, the text says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. In other words, I'm the Lord your God who has rescued you, who bore you on eagle's wings to bring you to myself, who made you my treasured possession among all the nations. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among you. All of this is communicated simply here with just this one expression, I am the Lord your God. So listen, do you hear what the Lord was saying to the Israelites? What this is, is this is covenantal language. This is language of love and commitment. The Lord is reminding them through this simple statement we see repeated over and over again that He chose them, not because they were bigger, better, or smarter, but the Lord was reminding them that He, out of His goodness of His grace, placed His favor on them out of all the peoples of the earth. He had become their God, and they had become His people. They had entered into covenants. In fact, listen... Something we need to see is verse 2, this phrase in verse 2, I would say, is the indicative of the entire Old Covenant. This is the indicative of the entire Old Covenant. This simple expression, I am the Lord your God, grounds everything that we find in the Old Covenant. So, So all the imperatives, all the rules that you and I are to follow, they're grounded in this great statement of fact. I am the Lord your God. It was for this reason that Israel was to respond to the Lord's gracious initiative to rescue them and make them a holy nation with obedience. This is the reason that they were not to walk as the other nations, but to follow the the ways, the rules, and the statutes of the Lord. Note that, by the way, that this is not only true in the Old Covenant, but everywhere in Scripture... The imperatives always follow the indicatives. Everywhere. So, the commands always follow the statement of fact or what you are. Or what is happening. Okay? That is always the case in Scripture. And here's what we need to hear. As much in the New Testament as in the Old. We certainly see this dynamic in the New Covenant. We're aware of that. The covenant that Jesus established on Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. We know that that we've been brought to the foot of Mount Zion and the priceless blood of Jesus Christ has ratified a new covenant relationship with us, between us and God. We consider that atonement Christ accomplished two weeks ago as we consider the role of blood throughout Scripture. Christ has died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. This is the indicative, the statement of fact in the New Testament. Then, and only then, we believe, are we to obey all the commands. We know that. We know that's why we trust and obey. That's why we believe and repent. Because of what Christ has done. Because of this great indicative. Most of us are familiar with this in the New Testament. But we often overlook it in the Old Testament. In the Old Covenant. 
And this is the point. The old covenant is built on this indicative no less than the new covenant. And so to return to our text, after the Lord reminds them of this this great statement of fact in which the grounds for all their obedience is to flow, this indicative, he then issues a prohibition and then a command. Let's look at that in the text now. Let's look at the prohibition first. This is a general prohibition that he gives to the Israelites. Look at verse 3 with me in our text. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you, you shall not do, nor shall you walk in their ordinances. So this is the general prohibition, and the first one's very clear, right? The first general prohibition we see is Israel, do not walk like an Egyptian. That's from the text. Or as the Bengals say it, do not walk like an Egyptian. Got to put the emphasis there. Don't do it. Don't walk like an Egyptian. Here's the point. You've heard this expression before, right? You can take the girl out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the girl. You've heard that, right? Listen, I love you. Very many of you I could say that about. I won't because I value my life. Um, But you can take the girl out of the country. You can't take the country out of the girl. We've heard that. We know what that means. Well, the, The Lord was making a similar point here with Israel. He was warning them. See, the problem was you could take Israel out of Egypt, but it wasn't nearly as easy to take the Egypt out of Israel. Right? Like, where do you think they, they got the golden calf idea? Honestly. Do you think that was just some sort of ingenious burst of originality? No. Egypt had its calf god. Where do you think they, why do you think they were commanded a couple chapters ago to stop offering sacrifices to demons? See, They still had with them the worldview that they adopted in Egypt. They still carried with them the idols that they should have left in Egypt. But not only did they have the threat of a worldview and idols they had picked up in Egypt, the Lord was about to bring them into a new land, which would have its own challenges, with its own worldviews, with its own false system of worship and perverse sexual ethics. And so the Lord warns them, not only... Are you not to walk like an Egyptian? Do not walk like a Canaanite either. That's the second part of this general prohibition. Do not walk like an Egyptian. And do not walk like a Canaanite. In other words, not only would they need to abandon all that they had learned in Egypt, but they would need to avoid entirely all that they would encounter in Canaan, in the Promised Land. The way the Egyptians and Canaanites worshipped was not to be imitated. The sexual ethics of the surrounding nations had no place among the people of God. The way that they conceived of the world was not to be Israel's worldview. So the Lord says in verse 4 of our text, He says, You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments. So now we've seen the general prohibition. Let's look at the general commandment. What is the general commandment here? And this, again, this reiterates the entire idea of these two passages in this verse. It's it's obedience. Israel was to follow the ways, rules, and statutes of the Lord, not the surrounding nations. Israel was to follow the ways, the rules, and the statutes of the Lord, not the surrounding nations. Nations, And here's a problem, because there's a temptation, especially in our culture, to hear this and think even subconsciously, ugh, poor Israel. I mean, all those rules. But, but let me remind you of something. The law was a gracious provision from the Lord. It's important to see this. No, the law did not create the relationship. That's important. The Lord initiated and created the relationship. But the law did regulate it. The law protected the relationship. The law maintained it. The law explained how to safeguard Israel's covenant relationship with the Lord. And so the law did not command, or so the Lord, excuse me, the Lord did not command the Israelites to obey him as some tyrant. But no, the law of the Lord was good and gracious. How do you know that? You say, well, because of the Bible. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9. What does this psalm tell us? The law of the Lord is perfect, 
Converting the soul. All these, by the way, are going to be synonyms for the law of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. See, church family, the law of the Lord was a gift to Israel. From the Lord to them. The law of the Lord was a gift and a gracious gift to Israel. Hear me. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He is a loving, gracious father who knows what is best for his children. The problem is we don't always believe that, do we? I've been telling this story to our kids recently that I made up and I think it's been helpful Lord, who knows? They may tell it to their therapist one day and it not be helpful, but I'm hoping it's helpful. Um, it's a story of the house of, of rules and no rules. There, there are two houses in this story. There's a house of rules and the house of no rules. In the house of rules, the parents have structured their house according to certain rules that the children are expected to live by and encouraged to live by and held accountable to live by. But right next door, in the house of no rules... Um, the, the parents in the house of no rules have no such thought. They could, in fact, care less. There were no rules and structures provided for the children in the house of no rules. And so, initially, the kids in the house of rules look next door to the house of no rules with a sense of longing. And they think, oh, what fun that looks like. All they do is eat candy all day and they never have to do any chores. That looks like bliss. But over the seasons, the kids' teeth start to rot because they never brush it. The house is infested with rats because they're never expected to clean. The parents even just give up because they are not treated with respect and they leave. The children are destructive, destroying all that they have and even each other. And the house that was not regulated by rules slowly degrades into the point of utter destruction. However, the kids who live in the house of rules, they actually grow and thrive. They grow up to be people of character who serve one another, who develop useful, good, and productive habits. The rules serve them and their family. Now, this was just a story that I made up to tell my kids when they asked me, why do we have to obey you? (laughs) But the point is clear. We often don't think in those terms. But friends, rules are good. They are. Again, the problem has always been that we as people don't believe that. The human race, since the fall of Adam, has instead preferred to do what is right in our own eyes. And in that, the conclusion of that, the result of that is, people are being deceived into thinking that slavery is actually freedom. This is the result. When we think this way about rules, this is the result. People are deceived into thinking that slavery is actually freedom. And that's what we believe. Hear me now. Especially if you're a student in here this morning. If you're a young person, you need to hear this. There is no freedom in doing whatever you please. There's not. If this is how you live, then you, according to the Bible, are actually a slave to your flesh. You think you are free because you're doing whatever your heart desires, but little do you know that your heart is poisoned, depraved, and bent on your total destruction. It's like you are strapped into a roller coaster, and because of the speed and the movement, you feel exhilaration and ultimate freedom, but little do you know that the track ends by going into a destructive pit where you perish forever. Hear me, friends. Obeying the Lord is real freedom. That's what real freedom is. Obeying the Lord is real freedom. There is no real freedom apart from obeying the Lord. The psalmist explains this in Psalm 119, verse 32, where he says, I will run the course of your commandments, for you shall enlarge 
my heart. Again, in Psalm 119, verse 45. And I will walk at liberty. Why? For I seek your precepts, your rules. And guys, this is so contrary to the way we think, again, especially in our culture. But to obey the Lord is real freedom. And and hear me, this wasn't only true of the Old Covenant, but true of the New Covenant as well. And, And this is where our theology tends to get a little weak here. We might be tempted to think of the Old Testament as law and the New Testament as gospel. It's really a false dichotomy. It's a it's a false division. We've already seen it's simply not the case. The Old Covenant was also built on the indicative of God's gracious redemption as it is in types and shadows. Likewise, the New Covenant also contains with it rules and statutes that you must follow. In fact, much of what we read in the New Covenant sounds a lot like we read in the Old. For example... The new covenant teaches that anyone who claims to follow Christ, that they're instructed to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that what we just read? For example, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 24. In fact, you could just put all the book of the second half of Ephesians here. Ephesians 4 says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in their futility of mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. That is, we are not to walk in the ways of Egypt and Canaan, but are to walk in the Lord's ways. That's Leviticus 18, 1 through 5. We are not to, as Paul says in Romans 12, 2, be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Doesn't that sound a lot like Psalm 19? Likewise, Peter writes, you should not be, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, 15 and 16, conforming yourself to the former lust, as in your ignorance. Not as you once lived, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it's written, be holy, for I am holy. You want to guess what Peter quotes there? Leviticus 19. You can no longer live like that. But you must live like this. You can no longer walk in that way, but you must walk in this way. It is as present in the New Testament as it is in the Old. Paul even warns the Thessalonians that God, in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, he says this, God will take vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Obey the gospel. You must. Paul writes in in Galatians 5.1, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Okay, so what what is the liberty by which Christ has made us free? We just read we're free. We associate that freedom with doing whatever we please. But how does the Bible associate that freedom? Paul explains it in verse 13 of the same chapter in Galatians 5. He says, For you, brethren have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's why we were set free. Paul goes on in verse 14, For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. A quote from Leviticus 19.18, by the way. As Paul tells the Corinthians, we are... In 1 Corinthians 9.21, love this, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. We are called to no longer walk as the world does, but in the way, the statutes, and the rule of the Lord. Loving Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving our neighbor as ourself. Listen, hear this. The Lord has not called us to a lower ethic in the New Covenant. He's called us to a higher one. So this raises the question. If the old covenant was was built on a gracious foundation and indicative like the new covenant. And if the new covenant therefore contains rules and statutes we must follow like the old covenant. Then what's the difference 
what is the difference between the old covenant and the new? Well, we actually find our answer in the final half of verse 5 of our text. Look at what it uh, tells us there at the back half of verse 5. It says, Which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Okay? In other words, here's what we say. In other words, the means by which the old covenant was to be maintained is obedience. The, the way the old covenant was to be maintained was obedience. It was maintained by obedience. Now, now hear me. Israel did not merit the blessings of the Lord or of the covenant by obeying the Lord. This is not about meriting anything. But if Israel was to continue to enjoy the blessings of the old covenant... They would need to respond with obedience. They would need to walk in the Lord's ways, not in the ways of the nation. In fact, if you look with me, we'll have it on the screen so you don't have to flip there, to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Very important back half in Deuteronomy. Uh, What we find in Deuteronomy 28, we find uh, the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience, which are stipulated as part of the Old Covenant. In fact, they're they're even distributed upon two mountains, right? He actually blesses one mountain as a sign, as a symbol, and he curses one mountain as as a picture of the Old Covenant. In verse 1 of Deuteronomy 28, here's what we read. It says, If you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all His commandments, which I command you today... That the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. Then down in verse 15, it says, But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all His commandments and His statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then in Deuteronomy 30, it's just laid out really clearly for us, 30, 15 and following, the Lord says this. He says, See... I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commandments, His statutes, and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. Here's the point, folks. Stay with me. The old covenant was conditional. It required obedience in order for its promises and blessings to be realized. In fact, here's the easiest way to think about it in these terms. We've used this often. Israel was to be a new Adam. That's what they were to be. Israel was was like a new Adam, and and good, uh, get it. Israel was ready to receive a new garden sanctuary as the new Adam. If Israel obeyed, they would live long in the land, and they would enjoy the Lord's favor and be protected from all their enemies. But if Israel disobeyed, then Israel would be driven out of the promised land, just like Adam was driven out of the garden of Eden. See, friends, this is the weakness of the old covenant. It did not offer a permanent remedy for the problem of sin. So let's go back to the the analogy of the two houses, right? Instead of houses, though, let's use land. Let's use the land of rules and of no rules. The land of rules symbolizing the promised land. The land of no rules, the nations. The Lord found Israel in the land of no rules. He rescued her, redeemed her. He loved her and he brought her into his land, the land of rules. She did not deserve it and there was no way for her ever to earn it. But if she was going to remain in the Lord's land, she would have to obey the Lord's rules. And listen, these rules, they were like boundary markers. You know those those little flags you see that mark out an underground wiring or cables or pipes? They're, They're little boundary markers that say, don't pass here. If you do, you have entered the land of no rules. And so if Israel was to follow the ways of the kids in the land of no rules, she would walk right past those markers and end up forfeiting the blessing and protection of her father. And the problem is, 
Israel was addicted to the land of no rules. Israel was compelled to live outside of the parameters given graciously to her by her father. This, this is really the fundamental problem with the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was maintained by obedience to the law, but the law had no power to enable obedience. The Old Covenant was maintained by obedience to the law, but the law had no power to enable obedience. The law was a boundary marker. But listen, boundary markers don't restrain anyone from leaving the path, do they? A sign on an edge of a cliff that says, danger, cliff ahead, doesn't actually stop anyone from walking over the edge of it. And Israel, like bugs to a bug zapper, were drawn away from the Lord outside of those boundary markers. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, verse 10, in the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. In fact, for this reason, in 2 Corinthians, Paul refers to the ministry of the Old Covenant as the ministry of condemnation. Why? Because that's all it could do, was condemn those who would go past its borders. You have now left the Holy King's territory, the blessed land. Condemnation is on all those who are outside of God's blessing. So the law could not save anyone, it could only condemn. And this is why the Old Covenant was temporary. It was never meant to be a permanent solution to the problem of sin. It was a means to a better end, yes. It restrained sin for a season, yes. It kept Israel from being as bad as Israel might have been, yes. It taught about the Lord, His holiness, and what He requires of His holy people, yes. But most importantly, the work of the Old Covenant is it revealed the desperate need for a better covenant. One that couldn't be broken by sinful people. And therefore, ultimately, the old covenant pointed to Christ. The one who would establish an eternal covenant that would not be undone because of sin. This is the fundamental difference between the old covenant and the new. The fundamental difference between the old covenant and the new is there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 That's the fundamental difference. And why? Because of Romans 8.2, where it says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. See, Jesus established a new covenant at Mount Zion by obeying the whole law for His people and dying for their sins. And so the new covenant is grounded in the complete redemption of God's people from all their sins by Jesus' perfect life and substitutionary sacrifice. So here, I've got like, I got like four fill-in-the-blanks here or something. I don't know, are they filled in the blank, the next four? Three of them are? All right, I'm going to just give you all of them right now. So, write fast. Uh, You got it. Okay. Here's what we know about the new covenant. It is ratified by the blood of Jesus. It is maintained by Jesus' perfect obedience. And it is better. The new covenant is better because it's all about Jesus. So the fundamental difference between the two uh, covenants is Romans 8.1. Because the new covenant is ratified by the blood of Jesus, it's maintained by Jesus' perfect obedience, and it is simply better because it's all about Jesus. And therefore, it is not depend on us. And at that point, we say hallelujah. I mean, let's, let's just consider the differences between the covenant made at Mount Zion and the covenant made at Mount Sinai. Mount Zion being the place where Jesus established a new covenant by His sacrifice. Consider these. At Mount Sinai, the people of God were, were covered with the blood of oxen. Moses splashed the blood of oxen on the people of Israel, which according to the book of Hebrews could not permanently take away sin. At Mount Zion, the people of God are covered in the precious blood of Jesus Christ which cleanses us from all of our sin forever. At Mount Sinai, the people, the people heard the words of this covenant that, that Moses gave them in Exodus 24, and they responded to the words of that covenant with, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. 
Christian, we stand at the foot of Mount Zion, hearing the words of the gracious gospel, and respond, all that the Lord has spoken, Jesus has done. He was obedient. At Mount Sinai, Israel received the law written on tablets of stone. On Mount Zion, we receive the spirit of truth who writes the law of God on our hearts. No longer boundary markers, but the law written on our heart that compels those who know Christ to obey. That frees us to live boldly for God, for one another, serving Him because we want to. That's real freedom. I'm going to let Paul conclude, inspired by the Lord, obviously. He can say it better than I can, but turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In fact, I've had to avoid this text because this is really the sermon. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, he's addressing the difference between the Old Covenant and the New. And and, and we'll start in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And read to the end. Paul says this, And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. In other words, it is not up to us to maintain this new relationship. Praise be to God. Verse 6, Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills... But the Spirit gives life. Now he's going to refer to the Old Covenant here. This is what he says. He says, But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. It simply pales in comparison, he says. And then verse 11, he says, For, what if, for if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless... When one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And here's why I say thank you, Jesus, for this. Because I really believe one of the largest changes in this church over the last five years is that there was a veil on which we read the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. Where we saw it as as not particularly relating to us, or we certainly didn't know how it related to us. But friends, the only way that veil is lifted is when Jesus is preached from the Old Covenant. Because the Old Covenant points to Christ always. And so as we are reading the Bible, it's testimony after testimony from you all saying, I see Jesus in Leviticus. I've never seen Jesus in Leviticus before. I see Jesus in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. I thought that was about David. But friends, God's word is centered and pointed about his son. And for lifting the veil in Christ, we can now see fully the glory of God as it's revealed in the old and the new. And we say praise be to God. Would you stand as we close with a word of prayer this morning? Gracious Father... Lord, we confess that we often misunderstand the Old and New Covenant. We confuse them in many ways. Lord, seeing too much discontinuity between them, or or even at times too much continuity. But your word is clear. Every single covenant that has ever been established has been initiated by you. Grounded in your work, not in ours. But the Old Covenant, which was temporary has been far surpassed by the new in Christ. That permanent 
eternal covenant we have with you through the precious blood of your son Jesus. Lord, a covenant that has no end and cannot be broken. So Lord, though we fail, and we fail often in many ways, we have this great hope and security. So Father, we pray that you would embolden us to proclaim the goodness of your grace, to proclaim the greatness of the new covenant, to trust we are being transformed into the image of your Son from one degree of glory to another, and to live boldly for him. Lord, we are not a people who are lawless. We have been called to live according to the law of your Son. And so grant us grace to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love one another well, to serve one another in a desire to bring you much honor and glory through our relationships. Lord, would you be so gracious to meet with us as we respond in worship and celebrate the covenant you have allowed us to enter into. We pray and ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat as we come to the conclusion of our service. is also the time of our invitation. Uh, and we do want to extend an invitation. Listen, I know this is, this is probably more of a, a theological camp kind of sermon. where uh, We're growing the church's theology and understanding the difference between the covenants, certainly. But, but in that, if you, if, if you don't know yourself to be a Christian this morning, I want you to hear the beauty of this story of not just an Old Testament or New Testament, but, but the story of, of life, the story of the world, the story that you are a part of in time and space right now. And it is the story of how a great God, an eternal, worthy God of all honor and glory, created a people for himself. The very purpose that he created mankind was to bring himself honor and glory. And yet man rejected God's good and gracious design, instead uh, designing, wanting to design their life after themselves, serving themselves and loving themselves, uh, loving themselves chiefly and not loving others as much as they love themselves. And, and in this, because of this great sin and rejection of God's design, there was a penalty that, that laid upon them, a penalty for breaking the Creator's law. And that penalty is, in fact, death, not just a physical death where we, we encounter sickness and illness and broken bodies physically, but, but a spiritual death where we are no longer able on our own to have a fellowship with our Creator. And so apart from from God entering into covenant with us and a a promise with us that He would redeem us, we would be here without hope. But praise God for the covenants. Praise God that throughout redemptive history, in fact, immediately after man's sin and the proclamation of death, God made them a promise that there would be a seed who would come, who would crush the head of the serpent of evil and sin and would have his heel bruised. And so in all of the Old Testament, they're looking for the seed. They're looking for this one. Who is he? They think maybe it's Abel, but then Abel's murdered by his brother. They think maybe uh, it's, it's Noah, but then the, Noah represents the gospel, but then Noah sins and is old and passes away. And then this, this theme of the Old Testament just continues to go on. There are figures that they look and they say, this must be the one, the promised one, and then that one sins and fails and dies. Therefore, it can't be until God sent forth His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born as a king who entered into human flesh to be born, the eternal God incarnate. And in His human flesh, He grew. He learned. He did not sin in any way, shape, or form. Instead, He perfectly obeyed the law of God. Which means that he did not, therefore, deserve the penalty of death. And yet, that's exactly what he gave himself up to. Not just the penalty of death, but the eternal wrath of his Father that he bore on behalf of those of us who have earned that death and that wrath. He gave his life as a sacrifice. And so now, now in Christ, we receive his good standing, his righteous standing, his perfect standing in the eyes of his Father as he received our just condemnation. And the only way that this is observed and received by his children is by faith and repentance. It is a turning away and acknowledging that I am no longer king of my own life. But Jesus is the only one who could ever earn righteousness and he did. And he is my Lord and I desire to follow him. And then it is trusting in his finished work on the cross that it truly is 
enough, that it satisfied the just wrath of God, and it is sufficient for me to live unto him. And now, because of that great statement of fact, we, Christian, we have fruit that we follow him by our desire to obey the imperatives of Scripture. So ask yourself this question. Maybe you're here this morning, and and, and you have a, a relationship with the Lord that is built upon what you do. That, that when you feel like you're obeying well, you feel like the Lord is happy with you. But when you feel like you're not obeying well, or you make one mistake, then you doubt whether or not you're a Christian. Don't you see that you misunderstand grace, friends? That when you understand the glory of the gospel, it is about trusting in what you are and what Christ has done for you that has made you what you are. And that's the fuel and desire that didn't want to obey. So ask your question. That's a question that you can ask yourself in your heart right now. Do I have any desire to obey the commands of the Lord? And if the answer to that question is no, or the answer to that question is only when I want blessings from the Lord. Then, friends, you have a right to check whether or not you really are in a relationship with Him. But if you know the gospel, you know what He has said about you, you know what you were, what He says about you now, what you are in Him. And that is the fuel and drive you have to obey everything. He says that even though you fail, your heart is is wretched over that and you're crushed over that because you want to obey Him because of this great gospel. Then, friends, you say, praise the Lord. For the assurance that I know I'm His. Because that's what it looks like to be a Christian. So maybe you're here this morning and your relationship is just skewed with the Lord. It is built on the imperative and not on what Christ has done. Then friends, you need to respond with gospel faith this morning. Maybe you just need some help and doctrine and understanding. There will be an opportunity for you to come forward after our service. Brother Justin will be down front as well as Brother Brock. And we'd be happy to share more about what it looks like for you to be a Christian. What the Christian life looks like as you are struggling with the call to obey, that you would truly be a child of the King. And church family, if you're here and you already know yourself to be a child of the King, then you say, praise God for the new covenant. <laughs> praise God that, that though I am, I'm called to obey Christ's law, that I'm actually empowered to obey Christ's law, that I experience the real freedom of the gospel. However the Lord is calling you to respond, I pray that you would.